Mark chapter 14, verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thank you, Lynn. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you here today. Um, we're going to continue our series, Building Up to Easter, looking at Mark chapter 14 and that passage that was um, just read there. As we come to this great passage, let's, um, I want to pray some of those words from Psalm 103. We're going to be thinking, it's a, a strange thing today, but we're going to be thinking about um, praying that God would teach us to let him love us. I wonder if you're, you ever struggle to let God love you. Um, But we're going to pray and see that in this passage. So let's pray together. And I'll just read one of those verses from Psalm 103 that was prayed earlier. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage today and we see Peter and the mistake he makes and then how you go on to continue to pursue him in love. I pray that you'd show us a little more glimpse of the incredible love that you have for each one of us. Please would you help us to understand this passage now, I pray. Amen. I want to begin by making um, three observations. They're not rocket science, I'm sure you, well I hope you'll agree. Uh, here's the first observation. Uh, you and I long to be loved. That's a very normal human emotion. We long to be loved. That's why love is one of the strongest emotions that any one of us can feel. Uh, The joy of knowing and experiencing and giving love is so great. And the pain of losing love or having love broken is so painful. Uh, That would be an obvious observation to make. We want to be loved. The second observation is that the Bible tells us time and time and time again just how deeply loved we are. One of the most extraordinary things about love is being loved when we don't deserve it. Being loved when we don't think that we're lovable. One of my favorite verses in the Bible comes in a book called Jeremiah. And in chapter 31, verse 3, God speaks to his people who have persistently shoved him out of the picture. And he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? And in the context, he's he's saying, I pursue you even though you've ignored me. Such is my love. I don't love you because you love me. I love you because I am love. So first observation, we want to be loved. Second observation, the Bible tells us time and time again that we are loved. The third observation, which is what we were praying earlier. I wonder, do you, like me, sometimes struggle 
to allow God to love you? I don't know if you've ever even asked that question. I think sometimes we experience shame, particularly in the Christian life, perhaps if you're not a believer and follower of Jesus. Shame that puts you in a place where you feel, really, I don't feel I deserve to be loved. Or even, I don't feel I can be loved. And it's not helped by the religions of the world, because all the religions of the world say, God will love you if... dot, dot, dot. You do good things, you know certain things, if you can prove to him that you love him first. But the Christian faith is different. The Christian faith doesn't say God will love you if. The Christian faith says, for God so loved. And that's the difference between the Christian faith and all other religions. God doesn't love us because we love him. He loves us because he is love and he wants to pursue us in love. You see our desire to be loved in in pop culture in a lot of lyrics from songwriters. Here's a a famous one, Michael Jackson, the late Michael Jackson. He famously once said, if you enter the world knowing you're loved and you leave knowing the same thing, then everything that happens in between can be dealt with. There's an expression of someone who wants to be loved and knows how powerful it is to be loved. Well, I wonder for you today, do you know just how much God loves you? Have a reflection on this second quotation. This comes from a man called C.S. Lewis. Quite a difficult one, and I'll explain it. He once, quite famously in in part of one of his books, says, God has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable way. That last word, inexorable, really means unrelenting or unstoppable. And he uses this quote to describe the love that God has for you and me, because he says, look at the way that God loves you. It, It goes so deep. It's so tragic the way that he's loved you so much that he's given his son to die for you. And his love for you is utterly relentless. It's unstoppable. And he said it's a compliment because you want to be loved like this, but it's intolerable because you feel like you don't really deserve it. And you don't allow this love to really flood into your life. I was um, passed this book recently by um, my best friend. And uh, I read it a couple of weeks ago. and It's absolutely brilliant. And I'd recommend that um, you pick up a copy if anything that I speak about this morning resonates with your heart. I just want to read to you a little bit of the blurb on the back because this has really helped me with this particular passage we're looking at. Uh, The writer says this, We've bought into the lie that we're worthy of God's love only when our lives are going well. If our families are happy, our jobs are meaningful, then life is a success. But when life begins to fall through the cracks and embarrassing sins threaten to reveal our less than perfect identity, we scramble to keep up a good front to present to the world and to present to God. We hide until we can rearrange the mask of perfection. Sadly, it is then that we wonder why we lack intimate relationships and passionate faith. Do you ever get caught in sort of keeping up appearances because... You feel you need to be something for other people to love you and particularly perhaps have to be something for God to love you. And that's what this book is speaking about. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at a very sad kind of passage in the Bible where you've got these three individuals or groups of people who remain spiritually blind. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, the disciples who abandoned Jesus and the religious leaders who couldn't see who Jesus was. And I said last week, though that was a very challenging and difficult passage, this week will be a very uplifting one. So you're probably puzzled thinking, well, how is that possible? Because it's another deeply sad story. This guy, Peter, who disowns Jesus. But I want to look at it 
And I want to look at it through the lens of a man who blew it, who couldn't keep up appearances, who couldn't always do everything right. And yet, I want us to look at the incredible way that the Lord Jesus responded to Peter and responded to his failures, because it's a hugely heartwarming thing, which I hope and pray will encourage each of us. So come with me in Mark chapter 14. Do you remember uh, last week in Mark 14 verse 54, I kind of parked us on a verse where Peter was warming himself beside a fire in a courtyard, and I said, we're going to come back to that next week. Well, we're back in that courtyard now. Uh, it was the springtime, but in the evening, particularly up on the top of the hill in Jerusalem, it would be quite cold. So it would be normal for there to be a sort of brazier, a fire in the courtyard, and many people who were there would be surrounding it to keep warm at night. I'm sure we've all been there on a bonfire night, say. And I can imagine maybe someone sort of tosses a, a log into the fire, and you know what happens when there's a hot fire and a dry log goes on. The sparks come up, uh, and the light rises, and suddenly the people can see who's standing around the fire. It says, verse 66... While Peter was below in the courtyard, that's the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus has been tried, one of the servant girls of the high priest comes by. She sees Peter warming himself and looks closely at him. And it's as if she sort of points the finger and says, you were also with that Nazarene, Jesus. And verse 68, it says, Peter denied it. And notice the sort of double denial, the sort of total denial of Peter. He says, first of all, I don't know. And second of all, and I do not understand what you're talking about. And he leaves and went into the entrance. I don't know Jesus. He's one of his disciples. And I don't understand who he is. It's a very straight denial. And then it goes on. The servant girl says to him, um, sorry, when the servant girl saw him, she said again to those standing round, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. And that little phrase, he denied it there, literally means he went off on one. We don't know the words, but it's as if he's sort of trying to persuade them that they don't know, he doesn't know who they are. I don't know this man. I've never, never seen him. I've never spoken to him. I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes off on a kind of rant to protect himself. But of course, all the time he's speaking, what are they doing? They're listening to his dialect. They're noticing that he's got a northern accent. He's from Galilee in the north. And so verse 70, after a little while, those standing near said, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And the great irony is the more he tries to defend himself, the more he gives away who he is. And so verse 71, now Peter gets really strong. He calls down curses. He swears at them and says, I do not know who you're talking about. Remember last week when uh, we looked at Judas betraying Jesus and as that time when he came up and kissed Jesus, I suggested perhaps it was like the whole world slowed right down and everything went into slow-mo. This might be another scene like that where Peter speaks out defiantly, I don't know this man, and then his whole world slows down. Maybe he remembers some of the words he had spoken back in verse 29. Do you remember his words? You can look at it if you have a passage in front of you, verse 29. Peter says, even if all fall away, I will not. I'm different. I'm faithful. And then he had said in verse 31, even if I have to die, I will never disown you. And in that moment by the fire, he's just not just denied Jesus once, he's denied him three times. No doubt the penny drops for him. And he's absolutely gutted. And then perhaps to make it worse, he remembers the words 
of Jesus back in Mark chapter 8, which we touched on last week. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory. How would you have felt if you were Peter in that moment, denying the Lord Jesus three times, having promised twice that you'd never do it, and hearing these very powerful words from Jesus? And then the story goes on. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And all we read is that he breaks down and weeps. I'd just like to draw three things out of this passage and and what comes after this passage to help us to understand what does the Lord Jesus do with people who blow it. And here's the first thing to, to point out in this passage. It's an obvious thing, but it's something that perhaps we find difficult to accept. You and I have blown it. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, can we admit it? If you remember that slide I showed you last week, there's the example of different people who, for different reasons, should have known who the Lord Jesus Christ was, but remained spiritually blind. And maybe you're asking the question, well, why, if off the back of such a tragic passage last week, why another story of another tragedy, of another failure? Why has Mark included this? Is he sort of trying to beat us up and make us feel even worse? I think this story of Peter's failure is here in the Bible largely to show us that what human nature is really like, even as it were in the best of men. All of us at different times will blow it. Let me tell you a funny story. Um, when I uh, was a little younger, I used to be a canoeing instructor. And uh, my friend and I, he was a guy called Tonks, that was his nickname. We used to do summer camps and we used to take um, children out canoeing, kayaking in rivers and uh, in lakes. Uh, one of the sort of unwritten rules if you're a canoeing instructor is that you never fall out of your boat, you never swim. So you wear what's called a spray deck, that's kind of a canopy that comes around your torso, attaches around the edge of the boat. And if you ever tip over you have a skill where you can do a particular stroke that flips the boat back up the right way. It's called a roll. And if you're an instructor, you pride yourself on the fact that if the boat tips over, you can get up again. Because all the people you're teaching can't, and when they fall in, they get very wet. Well, I thought it'd be funny to play a practical joke on my friend Tonk. So one time when we were all rafted up, and I was holding the back of his boat, just sort of in a big group, when they weren't watching, I slowly unscrewed the kind of bung in the bottom of his boat. It's, it's used to kind of help when you clean a boat to empty it. It's just a little bung like this. And I unscrewed it and I just tucked it into my jacket and we carried on. And gradually through the afternoon, he started getting lower and lower in the water. And of course, with the spray deck on, his legs should be dry, but he started getting this wet feeling on his legs and no doubt he was quite worried. And then eventually I saw this canoeing instructor who should have been able to roll back up the right way, slowly sinking to the bottom of the river with his boat and all the laughs were on him. You might say incredibly cruel, but the point is, even the best kayak instructors sometimes swim when they've got a friend who's able to think outside of the box. Now, it's a bit of a silly story, but here's the serious point. If even the best kayakers can swim, isn't it true that even the best of us can fail? It didn't matter that he had the ability to roll back up because there was another way of making him swim. All of us will mess up at different times in our life. And when you blow it in life, when I blow it, what is our natural reaction? So often, isn't it true, our pride kicks in and we try to prove ourselves. We try to justify the mistake we made. We compare ourselves to others to make ourselves feel better. We try to excuse our failures and our faults. 
What I love about this particular story, what does Peter do when he recognizes that he's utterly blown it? Do you see it in verse 72? It simply says he wept bitterly. Peter wasn't in that moment trying to prove himself. He wasn't then resolving, well, I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to prove to Jesus the next time that I'm not going to disown him. He just broke down, recognizing there was nothing he could do. What could he do to pay back his savior for the denial that he had just given? Nothing. And amazingly, all that Peter can do is break down and weep. And doesn't that actually take great strength? It's the pride of the world that says, you always have to be sorted. You always have to be okay. You can never fail. If you do fail, prove your worth. Earn people's love. Doesn't it take great humility just to say, actually, I can't. I will mess up. And I can't earn God's love. Just in those two words, he wept bitterly. I think there's a wonderful picture of humility. That when you and I do blow it, can we acknowledge it and just say, there's nothing I can do. I hope that's a great encouragement to you. But let's look at the second thing in this passage. Not only have we blown it, but asking the question, can we admit it? But here's the second thing. This is a wonderful truth. God forgives people who have blown it. And the question to ask you is, but can you really trust this? So to make this work, I want you to think of a a time in your life when you have blown it. I don't know, you made a mistake, you regret a decision you've made, you've let God down, uh, a missed opportunity. Somewhere where you know you, you get that kind of ouch moment. Sometimes it's a kind of, oh, I've done it again. That sin has just crept back into my life. That attitude, that thing that I've been praying about, it's just happened again. You ever have had that? ouch moment sometimes it's more of a kind of despairing ouch I just keep mucking up and then your conscience kicks in doesn't it and one of the great gifts of God by his grace his spirit works on that guilt and that conscience in your heart and you do feel gutted but here's the incredible thing guilt is not God's way of pushing you away from him remember what religion says uh, God will love you if So when you have that moment where you think, I'm gutted, I've mucked up, that's not God inducing guilt to make you feel, well, I've got to try harder then to earn his love. Instead, isn't guilt an opportunity to come back to God and to receive his forgiveness? Think of it in Peter's life in chapter 14, verse 71. He says, I don't know this man you're talking about. And then he gets this, ouch, what have I done? But that wasn't designed to then make Peter think, right, well, I now need to try even harder to prove again that I love him. Because what's he going to do? He's going to fail again. That ouch moment is meant to drive him to his knees like we saw. And he does. He weeps bitterly. No doubt you've had the times in your life, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, where Mark chapter 8 verse 38 would really kick into your heart in quite a difficult way. Have you ever been ashamed of your saviour? I know I have. And in moments of lost opportunities where I should have spoken and I didn't, you get that kind of ouch moment. But here's an incredible truth. Look what God does with that challenge. Another verse from a a book called 1 John. If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I want you to think a little bit about this, because I often think that that our view of the Lord Jesus is very much focused on thinking about his life and his ministry, and then his death and his resurrection. 
How much time do we spend thinking about the Lord Jesus' continuing work in our lives? The fact that he, he beat death, he rose to heaven. He's not just now on holiday in heaven doing nothing. He is at work in heaven. And what this verse says is that part of God, Jesus Christ's work in heaven today is to speak to the Father in our defense. So when God the Father in all his perfect purity and holiness has to punish and judge all the wrong in the world, and that's a good thing, what does the Lord Jesus Christ do who stands and speaks on our behalf? Every day he steps in and says to the Father, you cannot punish my children. Why? Because I died for them. And because my sacrifice for them was perfect. Have you spent much time thinking about this work of the Lord Jesus? He continues to intercede on your behalf and on my behalf. To give you another illustration, imagine I'm in a court of law and the judge pronounces you're guilty and you owe a hundred million pounds. And he says, you've got to pay it. And I go, I can't pay it. Imagine if someone comes into that court of law just as he's about to give me the verdict and says, judge, Mark doesn't need to pay the hundred million pounds. I've already wired the money into the account of the person he owes. It's been paid. He can go free. That is like the sort of conversation that the Lord Jesus is having in heaven every day on your behalf and on my behalf. And that's an incredible thing. Let me read to you um, from a little book that I found really helpful on this. For every failure to live up to some way that we ought to be, there's always a tendency to punish ourselves in such a manner as to produce yet another failure. And every failure produces the same response. I ought not to have failed. Our inner judge keeps crying more, more, but no matter how much we pay, we can never pay enough and any relief is temporary at best, fatal at worst. Why do we find it so difficult to accept God's forgiveness? Perhaps it's because we think we deserve to be guilty. We think it's not fair to me for me to be free of guilt, given the wretch that I am. But guilt can never pay for our sins. Guilt can never pay for our sins. Guilt of the most torturous kind doesn't commend us to God. We don't make ourselves more presentable to God by enduring the misery we know we deserve. Our guilt cannot add to the value of Christ's death on the cross for us. We might be troubled troubled by forgiven sin, but God is not. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our confessed sin has been so thoroughly put away that it no longer presents a barrier to our fellowship with the Almighty. The Bible describes in several different ways how wondrously and completely God has dealt with sin. I don't know if that resonates in any way with your heart. But sometimes I think we struggle to let God love us. And we struggle to allow the death of Christ in our place to be enough. And so we end up punishing ourselves. If you want proof of this forgiveness that I've been talking of in this passage, just come with me in Mark's Gospel to chapter 16, just right at the end. Uh, The scene is the tomb of Jesus on Easter Sunday. The Lord Jesus has risen again and the angels meet the women who've gone to the tomb to look for Jesus. And in Mark chapter 16, the angels speak in verse 6, and they say to the women, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Now notice what comes next. But go, 
tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. Have you ever noticed that? Why here does the angel deliberately pick out Peter? Peter was a disciple, so why didn't he just say, go and tell the disciples? He deliberately says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Yes, Peter. Yes, the one who disowned me. Yes, the one who blew it. Tell him that I've risen. Because he is one that I've died for too. And I want to forgive him. So let's make this really personal for you. I want you to, I've done this before. Imagine there's a sort of imaginary box here. Okay? Think of that time, as I asked you earlier this morning, at the time you've blown it, the time where you were utterly gutted for a mistake that you've made. Whatever it is, a failure, something that continues to plague your heart. Maybe that sense, I really, if you ask me honestly, don't feel I deserve to be loved by God. I don't think I'm worthy. Stick whatever that is in that box. I hope some, every one of us has got something in that box. Now ask yourself the question. Firstly, does your sin, does whatever lies in that box, does it first lead you to sorrow? Peter wept bitterly. Worth asking the question, when was the last time that you wept at your sin? When was the last time that it bothered you as much as it bothers the Lord Jesus? But more than the sorrow that it brings... Does it lead you to your saviour? Because if you look at the box and what's inside the box, look what is just next to the box. The cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ meets our failures every single time and says, it's okay. You don't need to be something because I love you just as you are. Do you remember last week as we looked at these failures? How does Jesus respond to Judas and the disciples and the religious leaders? We saw time and time again, what does he do? He gave himself. Innocent, didn't deserve it, but gave himself to cover our shame, to cover our mistakes, to cover our endless quest to try and keep up pretenses, to be something. He says, you don't need to keep trying because I know what you're really like. But just let me love you. Let me read you the words of uh, Martin Luther. Uh, He said this 500 years ago, but it's um, very powerful. He says, listen, when the devil throws up our sins at us and declares to us that we need death and hell, it's a description of the right judgment of God for our rebellion against him, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Martin Luther looks at his failure. He looks at what's in his box. And he says, the world and the devil will try and condemn me for my failure. But every time it does that, I look to the cross and the cross forgives me because I know Jesus. And what's really remarkable about that quotation, if you know anything about Martin Luther, in his earlier life, he was a monk and he was striving all the time to be something that God might love him, trying so hard. And he once, and I think I'm paraphrasing, I recall him writing once, if anyone would ever get to heaven by their monkery, I was he. In other words, if anyone would ever get to heaven by being good, by striving to try and tr- prove themselves to God, to prove that they deserve the God of love, I was that person. But he came to recognize God doesn't love us because we prove ourselves to him. 
He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He doesn't love us because we love him. He loves us because he loves us. And there's no other love in the world that is like that, that is that consistent, that consistently loves us perfectly, even when we don't love him back. And so you go back to where we started, our great desire to be loved, the Bible's declaration we are loved, and then that struggle, why is it that we find it so difficult to be loved? Perhaps this story from Peter could be a great help to us. Because we see here that Peter, God wanted to forgive Peter. And wasn't it wonderful that when the angels appeared at the tomb, they singled him out, the one who failed perhaps the most, and says, tell him, I've risen, because I'm going to forgive him too. And briefly, just the third thing we'll see. I think this is the thing that hopefully should warm your heart the most of all the things we're looking at. Yes, we will blow it. Yes, the Lord Jesus promises to forgive. But here's the great truth. God uses people who've blown it. And so the question to leave you with is this. Will you let him? Uh, this is a picture of a beach in Israel. And I was sitting on this beach uh, in a quiet moment in September. And because of the geography of where this is relative to other places in Galilee, there's a good chance that this is the beach, or at least very close to the beach, where Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. And if you know the story, it comes in John chapter 21. The disciples are out on the lake, they're fishing, they're not catching anything, and Jesus enables them to perform this miraculous catch of fish, another sign that points to who he is. And when Peter recognizes that the man on the beach with a fire was the Lord Jesus himself, he jumps out of the boat and he starts wading, swimming, splashing, running towards Jesus. This is Peter, remember, who disowned Jesus, who mucked up. But he saw Jesus, and he came to him, perhaps on this very beach. And do you know the amazing words that Jesus spoke to him? And he says it three times in different ways. Peter, feed my sheep. Think of all the different ways that the Lord Jesus could have reinstated this failure. And he chose to say, I want you to be one of the people who's going to feed my disciples and lead the charge as the gospel goes out to the world. Yes, you, Peter. Perhaps the biggest failure of them all. Isn't that the most incredible example of not just the Lord Jesus' forgiveness, but the Lord Jesus saying to people who've mucked up, I'll forgive you and I will use you. And the tragedy is, you compare Peter to Judas. What happened to Judas? You don't get it in Mark's gospel, but in Matthew 27, we read that Judas hung himself. He put himself out of the reach of the forgiveness of God. He put himself out of the reach of being used by God. But in contrast, what about Peter? Who was it who stood up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? And with great bravery addressed a great crowd and said in chapter 2 verse 38, Repent and believe the good news and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter. And the only reason he could declare that with such bravery in Jerusalem that morning is because he himself had experienced the forgiveness that he was now declaring to a world. Or you think of Peter who wrote two letters, one and two Peter. And how does he begin 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3? He speaks these wonderful words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Isn't that an amazing example of embodied truth? As he speaks, God has shown us mercy and new birth. He's speaking of himself just as much. 
the Lord Jesus has shown me new birth. He's shown me mercy. And that's why he can declare it with such energy in 1 Peter 3. So I want to encourage you. Are you able to admit, like Peter, that you have blown it? And then stop trying to be something that God would love you, but instead trust that God just wants to love you as you are. And he wants to forgive you. And then more wonderfully still, not only does he want to forgive us, but he calls you and me and all of our brokenness to be used by him, just like he used Peter, to further his gospel to a lost and broken world. And what that means for you if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is every day standing in his grace. I want to end by asking that question. Will you allow the Lord Jesus to love you? And maybe inside you're still saying, it's just so scandalous, his grace. Why would he want to love me? It is amazing grace. Isn't it such a sweet sound that saved a wretch like me? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If you let the Lord Jesus love you, then that can be your testimony too. Amen.